Well, hello everyone. Welcome to the Third Place Podcast. Today is November 3rd, 2020, Election Day. And I think for most people, no matter where you would fall on the political spectrum, even if you're not in the United States, there's a lot of eyes on our political system and this election and are we going to know the results? Are we not going to know the results? There's an awful lot of unknowns and just tension in the air with everything that's going on. And for this week's episode, we really wanted to just pause and look at something that we could all lean into. What does it look like just to remember love is the greatest truth? So for today's episode, we are interviewing a friend of mine. Her name is Samantha Thomas, and I'll introduce a little bit more about her in just a moment. But she runs an organization called Just Choose Love, and we wanted to take a pause in the midst of all the tension and get back to this truth of love and remember. So here is the interview um, with Samantha. And then next week, we're going to keep the conversation going. Uh, We have a lot of stories that we've been collecting from you and others just around seeing love in action, like real love in action, when love is really hard. We recognize that we are living in uh, just tense times with lots of stress and lots of anxiety and things aren't going to be easy for a while but we can still come back to this root of love what does it truly look like to live into love to believe in love to be love to other people and so um, thank you for listening to this episode and just want to let you know that we love you guys and and love is what will bring us out of these tough times Welcome, everyone, and Samantha, thank you so much for joining us. I'm really just excited to actually introduce you to Mary as well. Uh, Samantha, you're someone that I met a few years ago when you organized a a summit in Cincinnati around business. It was called the Love Summit, which love and business usually are not related, but uh, we got connected because of coffee. How could we provide coffee for the summit? And then as we kind of got the to talk just, um, you know, everything about our business ethics, where how do we infuse love into the conversation? And of course, you and I just hit it off from there. So I'm really excited to introduce you just to our third place audience, as well as my Thanks friend. Thanks so Mary. much for having me. I appreciate it. It's so good to meet you. And I'm ex- especially excited about this conversation. So we just wrapped up an election or we're wrapping up an election. Maybe. And- <laughs> Maybe, or maybe it's still going. We're recording a couple weeks ahead of time. But uh, regardless of wherever we're at today, uh, we thought it would be a good moment just to pause because while things are tense in our just our country right now, there is a lot of hope and there is a lot of love. And I think there's a lot of just really great stories that are maybe good to ground us in. And so that's why I want to just even unpack a little bit more what is what is love and what, what does loving each other look like? What does, you know, figuring this world out together in a way of love uh, mean for us today? So that's why I wanted to bring you in. And I know you've been up to so many great things, um, continuing to just deep dive into love and as an ethic love into business over the last couple of years. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm excited just to hear your journey over the last couple of years as well. So. Sure. Yeah, happy to share about that. 
So I've been doing, as you said, a lot of work around love for the past several years. And it started with this business and leadership conference that I created called the Love Summit which aims to bring together business leaders to discuss and explore the significance of love as a social ethic. Uh, so love is a value in our societal systems. And I did two of those business and leadership conferences under a nonprofit that I used to be the executive director of. It's called Dream Change, founded by the author John Perkins. And then after doing two love summits under that nonprofit, I felt I was ready for something new, I wanted to continue my work with the Love Summit, but I'd been at Dream Change for six years, and there was I noticed a lot of pushback at that time in the business world about using the word love in the context of business. And so not only was I feeling like, you know, it had been a while that I'd been at Dream Change and I was ready for a little bit of a career shift and something new wanting to continue the love summit, but also feeling like I needed to get more credibility behind the word love and help to universalize it, if you will, uh, so that it could be received better in the context of business and governance. So I left, I resigned from my position at Dream Change in 2017. And then about a year later, I decided to roll, enroll in a master's of science research program at University College London, where I was studying global prosperity and doing research on love as a force for social justice. So I just finished up that program and finished up a, a dissertation that I did on my research about the love ethic and specifically Bell Hooks love love ethic. She's an African-American feminist and cultural critic who talks about love as a social ethic. So that, uh, yeah, an exciting process. And that brings us to today. You know, the first thing I'm really curious about is what brought you to your, your work in, at Dream Change. And, um, you know, is there any sort of personal story that, that, first took you there and then how that led you into something mm -hmm. so specific as yeah, love. There's definitely a story. I feel like it's kind of a long story, but to make a long story short, uh, in my undergraduate studies, I studied sustainable living and I minored in business management. And I knew towards the end of my degree that I wanted to do something with a social mission and contribute to creating a better world in some way and creating more sustainability in the world. But I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do yet or how I would do that. I also have always considered myself an entrepreneur. So the idea of going to work a nine to five for a big company or a regular company, it just didn't really appeal to me. And then I took this workshop. It was a business leadership workshop that was led by this author and economist named John Perkins. And he's the founder of the nonprofit that I ended up working for, Dream Change. Mm. So it was basically there where I met him and I learned about this organization that he had founded back in the 80s, but it had been in a period of dormancy for the last 20 years or so uh, when he became famous for his writing and speaking and started to shift his attention there. So he basically asked me to come to the nonprofit and help revive it. So it was it was a great stepping stone for me. It wasn't, you know, starting my own business, but I had a lot of autonomy within that organization and the ability to uh, play around with different entrepreneurial pursuits like the Love Summit. 
It's cool because just yesterday, Dave and I were talking about that being an entrepreneur doesn't mean that you need to be self-employed or that you need to be uh, a business owner, that so much of being an entrepreneur is just a mindset and the capacity to have an environment that allows you to work in your most optimal uh, environment, basically, so that you can bring that spirit out of you. And it sounds like that you know, while that spirit lives so innately within you that maybe dream change was like you getting a taste of that and being able to help you launch into now the work that you do um, with with Bell Hook in particular. Is that really what you're focusing on now? Well, I was focusing on Bell Hooks and her theory of the love ethic through my master's research dissertation. And I'm tentatively planning on doing a PhD, which will involve doing research as well and a thesis. Uh, I don't know if I will continue focusing on her work specifically, but it's definitely informed so much of what I understand about love. And I do envision myself drawing on her her theory of the love ethic throughout my work and into the future. But I don't know if I will focus solely on on her her work. So um, can you bring everyone into that? Like what it, what about her work? drew you to her and what is her work? What does she discuss as this love ethic idea? Sure. So Bell Hooks has written a lot of books. She writes about education. She writes about capitalism. She writes about patriarchy and really the connection between all of these things. She has one book in particular, though, called All About Love, which is a culmination of her work in education and uh, the things that she's explored just in terms of the interconnectedness, as I mentioned, between capitalism, patriarchy, systems of domination and oppression, and a lack of love that is kind of the common thread, or as she says, the common thread in those systems. And in this book, All About Love, what drew me to it and why I think it really it really resonated with me is because she talks about the theory of the love ethic. She talks about love in the context of historical movements and in our societal systems, but she also relates it back to the individual and why we live in a pretty unloving society. And what she says is that that a loving, unloving society really begins with individuals who are not loving. So if we want to have a society that's based in love, then we have to start with individuals first. So that concept of change begins within, love begins within. That's what really drew me to her work. And what Bell Hooks talks about in that book specifically and in her work around love is how the antithesis of love is domination. And we currently live in a world that is is based in a value of domination versus a value of love. And as long as we remain in that mindset of domination, so when we think of domination, we can think that of the kind of values that come under or with domination, like the mindset of scarcity or greed or materialism, uh, profit over people and the planet, those kinds of things. And she said, Bell Hook says that love cannot coexist with domination. Love cannot coexist with abuse. So if we're to move out of the 
dominating society and a loveless society. We need to choose love and understand what love really means and what the principles of love and a love ethic are. So when you say love begins within or with the individual, I'm wondering, is it, and it's probably going to be both. I mean, so much of the third place we realize that there's, it's, we're trying to encourage people to think not if this or that, but that there's this spectrum, that there's this, you know, gray area where you find truths. But I'm wondering, is it, you know, in work with yourself or does it really start with love begins with when does that sort of allude to the relationship with parent? With our, our biological parents? Mm-hmm. I think so. I think, like you said, it's not a black and white situation, but when we say love begins within, that's a really complex statement. I mean, it's, yeah, it makes me think of the, the idea or concept of self love, which I know is a different, a different concept that we're talking about. But uh, it just reminds me of that because I think so often self love is conflated with this, con- this idea that we cultivate self love on our own with right. the help without help from our environment or other people. And it, and the same goes for, and I don't agree with that. I'll just put that aside. I think that self-love is something that is cultivated through our own experience. Sure. But also our experience is informed by the environment that we live in. So our parents or parental figures or a lack of parental figures or Mm -hmm. and friends and school and teachers and all the things that happen to us from early childhood onwards. Uh, And so the same concept goes for love begins within when we're talking about love as a social ethic. Yeah, that starts with us. So it starts with us as an individual and having the courage to choose love. But it is a very complicated, well, it's a difficult process. It's a challenging process. Love is harder to choose than fear or anything else. And so I think that that's why we so often fall into fearful patterns as individuals and in society and in our societal systems, because it's so much easier to not do the work and it takes a lot of work to choose love. Especially if you've been conditioned or so well-versed in the antithesis of love, right? Well, and I, yeah, I was going to, to me, I think like business is that domination. Like we, we learn business in this capitalistic system and we celebrate sports maybe too much that in order for me to win, I have, you have to lose. So that's like this inherent truth that we've learned. And um, so it's just the system that we already live in where for me in business, so much of our success and so much what drives us is how do we move away from this win lose mentality to a win win mentality? So when you were talking about domination earlier um, you know, that's, that's kind of where my mind went and, but we've been now doing it so long that we've learned that when you find the win-win situation and when everybody wins, then literally everybody wins Mm -hmm. and it's really good. And therefore like it's, it takes, it seems like it for me anyway, it has taken a long time to just lean into that as the truth, even when it is hard and very most often, like you said, it is more difficult to lean in that way because we're fighting old voices were fighting norms of today, but there's so many success stories that you just have to lean into the truth of, no, it's, it is successful. And now I look, I have all these experiences that kind of 
prove that it's successful. Right. And that's exactly why it's so difficult to choose love in our society, because it's going against the prevailing prevailing values of our societal systems like domination and greed and the mindset of scarcity. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's like, why choose something when you feel like the incentive lies in the opposite? Um, and, and I feel like so, so with bell hooks, um, and what you've learned, was there anything, you know, any, in all of the work that she's done on patriarchy and domination, was there any like one story or example that, you know, sort of pulled you in and made you feel like, man, I just, I really get it. And this is the work that I, you know, want to launch into more. Mm. Off the top of my head, there's not one story per se in particular, but something that started to, was kind of an example of how I saw the love ethic not playing out when I was doing this research and uh, just looking at the correlation between Bell Hook's work and and what I was seeing in our current societal systems and different social justice issues. One social justice issue that has obviously come up this year and been a huge one is racial inequality and the work that the Black Lives Matter movement is doing around that. And I ended up actually for my master's research dissertation using the Black Lives Matter movement as a case study. So basically the dissertation was a theoretical review of Bell Hook's theory of the love ethic. So I looked at what is the theory of the love ethic? What are its principles? Where has it been employed by former social justice leaders or in former social justice movements? Where did we go wrong? Why has the love ethic not been mainstreamed, even though leaders like Martin Luther King Jr., Mahatma Gandhi, Mandela, Mother Teresa, the list could go on and on. These leaders, all their central starting point was always love. Mm. And while they did make a huge splash in regards to bringing awareness to the importance of love, it still hasn't been mainstreamed. So I was really curious as to why. Why hasn't it been mainstreamed? And I think that and through my research, what I found is that a lot of that has to do with the fact that we are conditioned as a society and a culture to choose the complete opposite of love, domination and fear. And so I was interested in looking at a modern day social justice issue and movement um, and doing some research on the love ethic related to that movement. So I chose the Black Lives Matter movement and um, what propelled me to do that was that while I see the Black Lives Matter movement as being a really positive movement and having a very fundamental and important end goals, I was also witnessing so much divisiveness as I think we all have in the media and between people about racial equality and what that means and how to get there. And there being just so much separation between people and fear of other people's opinions. And so I ended up doing a short case study where I hosted a focus group discussion 
with a group of people to get their interpretation of love as a social ethic and whether they think that the Black Lives Matter movement is and and individuals that are proponents for the Black Lives Matter movement are actually uh, supporting a love ethic or choosing love in their social justice work and how we can do better at that or how we might do better at that if, if they felt that it wasn't doing that or people weren't doing that. And if it's even feasible for the Black Lives Matter movement to incorporate more of a love ethic into their their work and their marketing and messaging and how that might affect the movement overall and how people might perceive the Black Lives Matter movement if it should decide to do that. Yeah. So then, you know, what were some of the specific findings then that ultimately led you to believe that maybe there was opportunity for it to go even more successfully? So basically the overwhelming majority of participants in the focus group discussion agreed that a love ethic was important in the context of social justice issues. Um, One of the biggest things that was brought to light was the idea that when practicing a love ethic uh, and, and communicating messages from a place of love that message is more easily received by the person that you are speaking to or communicating with. And that's really important, especially in the context of uh, political issues, because conversations, of course, can get extremely heavy and heated. And we all have our own conditioning and opinions and feelings about things. And it can be easy to become divisive and to disagree and to separate ourselves from that other person out of fear or think that we know everything and they are wrong. Um, And the really cool thing about the love ethic and communicating from a place of love is that when people communicate in that way, it is so much more likely that the person that you're talking to, even if you come from completely different sociocultural backgrounds and have completely different political views, the likelihood of that message that you're, you are communicating to them, uh, the likelihood of it being received is so much higher than if you were to communicate in a way that is vulgar or uh, rude or unkind. And it's kind of, it brings me back to that idea of, I don't know if you guys have ever heard this, this sentiment, but it's always stuck with me, the idea that if you want to win someone over, you win them over with love. That's the way that you get people on your side is through love. It's not through instilling fear or being angry or unkind or yelling at them. It's the same with like with a child. Children are so much more receptive when you speak to them from a place of love and kindness versus yelling at them and screaming at them. Yeah. I feel like the, eh, one of the things that we want to do with the podcast, and I think even with this topic, like what in a lot of ways we're talking a lot of theory and, and really, really big ideas, but it also has to trickle down to the individual action. Like what can we do? And, and you talk about, you just said like, it's not responding in anger, but it's, it's responding in kindness. Like what are the small ways that we should be mindful of? Like how do we communicate from more from that place of love? Yeah, there's so many ways, but starting with being very present with people and 
the reason why I say present is because when we're present with someone, we aren't thinking about other things at all. We're just focusing on what that person's saying, right? So we're not thinking, what what do I think about this? Or what do I know about this? Or what have I learned about this? You're just with that person and listening to what they're saying. So you can, in a sense, you can put your preconceived notions about what they're saying aside and just be completely present with them and be innocent in how you're approaching your understanding of what they're saying. So I would say, A, be present and B, that the the gift of presence is that you can let go of your preconceived notions about what you think you know um, in that situation. So that's, that's one thing that's really important. Patience is also a huge one. Um, I think that many of us, myself included, are really quick to judge or um, I know that I can be impulsive sometimes when someone says something that rubs me the wrong way or that I feel like I don't agree with. I can be quick to want to respond or react, but learning to be less reactive and more patient and giving that person a chance um, and the situation a chance to kind of unfold more organically and let that person have space to express themselves. What's really interesting about that, and this came up in the focus group discussion too, uh, many participants said that when you're in that space with someone where you're being present and you're being patient and you're just creating a safe space for them to express themselves, what's interesting is that often when when we do that, we'll be surprised at what we can see happens as a transformation for that other person in the experience where they can kind of maybe perhaps for the first time hear themselves and see themselves and, and what they're saying and what they're doing in a totally different light. Um, so those are a couple of things I could go on and on, but. I mean, I love that answer. <laughs> I do too. But I'm, I'm also just like even recognizing how um, unequipped we are to be able to come from that place to be able to be present and patient seems like such a tall order for the way that we're operating right now, whether it's that we're incentivized and encouraged to be, you know, working too much and doing too many things, or the environment right now is asking you to do more things like homeschooling, if you've never done that or whatever it may be. And that, um, just the access to technology, I think, also makes us worth being patient and having short, just short um, attention spans. Like, I'm recognizing that in myself. My mom tasked me with, um, and my therapist tasked me with doing nothing for 10 minutes a day, like, truly nothing, <laughs> not even, you know, not even meditating, nothing, like, nothing. And I've, at first, I was terrified. Like, it was hard for me to even think of that because I assign so much of, you know, doing is assigned to so much of like progress or worth or all of these things. And I, so instead I was like, okay, I'm going to start with two minutes a day. So I've done like two minutes a day. It's truly only been three days. So it's like perfect timing. But I think that it's so important that our disengagement, I think with love really comes from such a complex place. But for me, I've had to boil it down being a mom of a three-year-old to how can I actually create space to come from a, a place of presence? Because patience is not challenging for me, but the presence is really coming from like, how can I be okay with like doing nothing 
And so that I can go into my childlike self to be able to play with him and feel engaged because so often that can feel like way harder than I feel like it should. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm so glad that you brought that up. So I'm a huge proponent of the slow, slow, slow movement. I almost said slow food movement because I'm also- I love that one too. Yes. <laughs> but I mean, they're all, it's all the same. So there's a slow movement. And then underneath the slow movement are all the umbrella movements, slow food, slow fashion, slow money. Um, and that has just always been a personal love of mine that that whole movement because i think that it is incredibly important that we slow down because it's only in those times of slowing down that we can really see the world and ourselves for what it and we are um and i think that we've kind of gotten a bit of a taste of that during covid which has been interesting i think that it's not fully but to some extent push people to slow down. And I think that that it's been a hard process. I, I, I know for myself um, and others, and we can see that too. Um, it's just been a whole, you know, paradigm shift in, in our world that we live in. And uh, it's just been interesting to watch that unfold. But, and I know that it's been difficult for a lot of us, but I've, I think that it's in those moments of, challenges and difficulties and uncertainty where we're often forced to push for deeper meaning and truer answers. And I think that it's only when we can slow down enough to to do that, that we're able to take that opportunity. So I think it's cool that we're finding ourselves kind of in that space today. But at the same time, like you said, Mary, we're also in living in a digital world where things are moving faster than ever. So it's just an interesting juxtaposition. And mm-hmm. I that we're feeling propelled as as a society to find the balance and we're not quite there yet, but it seems to be at the forefront of a lot of people's minds and attention. Yeah, it's it's honestly the thing that's driving how I am deciding to make the biggest decisions in my life right now because that that taste of of slowness was super uncomfortable and I feel like discomfort is the sign of like, okay, this is something I need to work with, right? Yay. Um, But that I feel like at the start of COVID, there was all this tension around slowness and that almost half of the time people were just wanting to like get through the slowness to get back to it. And so they didn't even get to fully appreciate that, that moment of presence. And that it was, there was the message out there was so much of like, try to sink in, try to like, just, you know, dig your teeth in right now and, and take, take advantage of what that is. And that now it almost felt like the pendulum went, has gone in the opposite direction where it's like crazier than ever because of like the start of um, school and the energy of summer is, is just like that too. And I think that through all of this, just like what you were saying, we're trying to find balance of like, what was that taste? How can we reincorporate that? And how can we redefine that through fall? Fall is, you know, we talk about fall is the death of of one way of operating. And I think that that's going to create space for really embedding new, new things. And that my hope is that people really can continue to find presence and patience so that we can come from a loving place. So pre COVID we had, we already had like the opioid epidemics at, a, at an all time high. We had suicides and loneliness at new highs in our society. And now here we are in COVID and all of those numbers have even gone higher, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, and for me, so much I think of the love conversation is, and especially on the personal practical side of things, is how do we start from this place of 
self-love. And I think that there's, you know, I think that, A, we all struggle with what that looks like truly, but B, for someone who is really struggling with loneliness, um, how do we, how do we just approach that? How do we attack that? And Mary, when you're talking about meditation, you said childlike, like to me as a kid, my memories of loving myself were easy. You know, I think like there's an innocence that at some age that we lose. So it's like maybe even pausing to think through that childlike, how do we get that back to that childlike self love space and really embrace it so that we can then start to um, give love a little bit more easily. Right. Well, also though, assuming there's no trauma, because like I immediately felt like, man, what a gift of that because I almost feel like yeah childlike but it's almost like baby like or infant like like the immediate sense of effortless self-love because I think it's almost like the second the clock starts ticking then there's the environment that you're talking about and everything else that sort of conditions the other way yeah it's really complex I think (laughs) like you said Mary from when we're infants and so tiny that uh, it's really at such a young age that the environment around us starts to shape us and imprint us with different feelings and ideas. Um, But I do believe that our natural state is one of joy and happiness. And I, I understand what you're saying, David, when you say, how can we get back to that kind of joyful and carefree state, childlike state and Yeah, as Mary said, it's a really complex question and venture to to take. I think that it depends on the individual. It's not like we can just tell ourselves, okay, Sam, be really childlike now, be happy, be joyous, just just do it. I mean, I think that's part of it is is reminding ourselves of our true state of happiness and joy and that that is our true nature. But there are so many factors around us that were that are working against us in in achieving that and being that. And while I do think that it is important to control our mind, and when we do have maybe negative thoughts that lead us out of a childlike state or a state of joy or happiness, to replace those with positive thoughts, that's that's important. And they talk about that in positive psychology. I think it's to replace negative thoughts with a positive thought and a feeling of positivity, it takes like so many more positive thoughts mm-hmm. the thoughts that you have. So it's a lot of work. And I think that I'm a huge proponent for controlling our mind. I think that that's the only thing that we actually do have control over, but it's also in my opinion and experience, the hardest thing to control. So I do think that that is important, but also of course there are, a lot of practical, realistic factors that are working against us from uh, socioeconomic factors to the environment that we live in, to the people that we're surrounded by on a daily basis. Um, So there's just a lot of moving parts. You know, to tell someone who is clinically depressed with an opiate addiction who is out of work and has no job and is unemployed to come back to the chat that childlike state. We can't just, you know, we can't just say yeah, like, you. <laughs> and get back to that childlike state. It's not going to happen. Right. There's a lot of other things that we need to 
that person needs to do for themselves and society needs to do for them as a support system for them and governance, you know, government is just supposed to be a support system for the individual to get to that place of happiness, to be able to truly pursue their happiness and experience that. So yeah, it's complicated. (laughs) As soon as I asked the question, I was like, Oh, it's relationship. Like we need the other people to be the mirror. We need other people to be the outside voice. We need other people to speak the truth. We need other people for support. And because we're also different and coming from other places, you know, the people that we need are, are going to be different and our needs are going to be different. And that's why choosing friends wisely is really important. Choosing those trusted people around you is really important. Mm-hmm. Well, that makes me think of two things. I immediately thought of the quote from into the wild, you know, Christopher McCandless. It's like really, yeah. it's all about relationship or relationship is everything when he's like his fine, one of his final journal journal entries when he's gone to be completely alone because he's like, I want to have zero relationship to everything. And then yeah. the truth he found is relationship to everything was, was all that mattered. And um, I also have to say, sorry to interrupt. No, you're good. Love. I don't know if it's from the movie or the book. I can't remember. But there's another quote from from Into the Wild that says happiness is only real when shared. Yes, exactly what you're saying. It's all about relationship. Like, how can how can we access relationship? But then I even had this other thing where I I mean, I feel like I'm being the devil's advocate. Sorry, David, (laughs) with everything you're saying. But good. But um. (laughs) Like what a privilege to have access to revolve yourself around people that can be a mirror of your of your childlike light or love, right? So like that to me is another privilege that I'm sitting here feeling like I've never felt a shortage of that. I may not have chose them because I wasn't clear of who I was or um, what was loving, you know, because love can be confusing, right? I mean, you, you like how you said that, abuse and love cannot, you know, be simultaneous, but it can be confusing. And even though I've had such a flush amount of that, I didn't choose it because I didn't even have a relationship with myself to understand which, what was represented as love and and what to accept. And thinking about in so many different environments and societies, or, you know, I don't have the best language for it, but that you don't, you may not even have access to to people around you in your community to be able to provide that for you. And I'm just having a moment of a little bit of a bleeding heart thinking like, man, how can we do that for others? And are there organizations that you know of or that you've gravitated towards that are, that are putting, you know, love in action or love as a social ethic that you, you don't want to shout out and feel like they're doing that for those that may not have as easy of access to it. Like I, I feel I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. I I will answer that. I want to rewind for a second and just acknowledge what you both said, uh, David, about the importance of relationship and then how that's really where a lot of this starts and love starts in relationship. And then, Mary, what you said about how so many people aren't surrounded by an environment or people that are loving. And that just reminds me of the the idea that so many of us grow up in dysfunctional families, um, I think it's rare for people to feel like they, they haven't uh, grown up with some kind of family dysfunction. Uh, a lot of us are exposed to traumas. And the beautiful thing, though, about getting older, even though it, 
can be hard in some ways is that you can we can start to choose the people that we surround ourselves with. We can choose, even if our family isn't perfect, um, we can choose friends that are like family. We can choose we can choose to surround ourselves by pe- with people that are loving and are supporting our growth and highest good. And I think I'll just finish off by saying, I think that's so important. And that's one of the biggest actions that we as individuals can take towards being more loving and choosing love is to find people that really lift us up and support our growth and our spiritual growth as a person. And I don't mean spiritual growth in the context of religion or uh, spirituality in the way that one might think. I mean, like what lifts your spirit up? What makes you feel fulfilled? What lights you on fire? And who are the people that push you towards that and encourage you towards that and support you in those endeavors in the things that do light you up um, and lift your spirit. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I just, I think that's incredibly important. And that's one thing that we can do as individuals, a huge thing we can do as far as shout out to organizations that are employing a social uh, love as a social ethic. I, I hesitate to, to throw out names, but I will say that I think something really positive about the digital age, while it can be difficult and isolating sometimes, the other side of that is that we do have the ability to be globally connected, number one, for the first time ever, which is amazing. Um, and secondly, even though our concepts of community are shifting and different now than they were before, we can find community online with people. If you don't feel like you have people in your immediate physical life right now that are supporting your growth as a person and helping you to choose love and be more loving, there are so many different platforms, whether it's even on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter, where you're finding people that you admire, that whose message you really, you really resonate with. Start following those people. Start looking at what they're doing. See what communities they are they are supporting. See what communities they are creating and join those communities. And from there, you will end up having, you know, a digital network of friends, but also often those those digital networks of friends and communities grow into physical gatherings as well. I know so many people who have made friends through Instagram or through Twitter or Facebook um, just by reaching out to people and joining communities there. So I would highly recommend that. Yeah. I mean, really even this podcast is a digital way to connect, right? I mean, you're, you're currently in Nashville. I'm in Cincinnati. Mary's in Colorado. There's definitely some negative components to the digital world, but there's also some, really greater access yeah yeah well i think that that's a really great practical way uh, to be thinking through love and to uh, be adding it to our own lives and and how we can uh, add to it and therefore express it more easily Uh, maybe just this final question like samantha when you feel love like when you personally are feel like you're lifting up describe Describe that feeling or what is it that just makes you feel lifted up? When I'm feeling true love, I feel free and liberated and like 
the world is my oyster, possibilities are endless, and everyone around me is so much more beautiful. And I just see the world in a much more beautiful light. Mm, thank you. I like, I sensed a literal like feeling of like a glow. Plus I also got the chills. <laughs> no, but I mean, like, thank you for your authenticity because, uh, even just that moment, like, you know, if just for that, I felt so present in your answer and that there was like, there's as simple as that there was an exchange even virtually. So thank you like so much for the work that you're doing and for coming on to, to share the work that you're doing. And I, can't wait to see what you do because I I feel like if it's founded in love like man I I can't wait to witness it and support it and with that being said can you please also share with people how they can find you whether it's on social media for sure yeah and I also just want to say David and Mary thank you so much for creating the space for me to share with you guys it's an honor and a privilege to do that and thanks to all those who have listened. I really appreciate it. You can find me on uh, social media, on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at two different accounts. The first is my personal one. It's at love by ST. And the other one is at just choose love. And then our website is just choose And you can sign up for the newsletter there and join the movement and stay up to date with all that's going on with the love summit and otherwise. Awesome. Thank you so much. You too. Take care. Be well.